morning. Merry Christmas to you all. It's good to be back here again with you. We've already read this morning's scripture passage from Isaiah, but that's where we're going to be camping today is in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. My name is Dave Foster. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, it's just a great time of year. Strange year, no doubt, but still our focus as we uh, just kind of rivet ourselves on this passage is going to, I hope, lift us up and give us a new perspective. But before we get to that, we have to talk about dark times. What's the dark time? Times where people go through uh, tremendous testing, uh, despair, uh, sadness. People are uh, experiencing things that they would rather not experience. In fact, when you look at history, uh, especially when you're in school, history textbooks tend to focus on dark times, don't they? I mean, at least when I was in school, you'd get your history textbook and you'd look at it and it would be jumping you from war to war to war and it would take you through uh, some of the more amazing things that happened, natural disasters and so forth. Uh, in fact, we measure time sometimes uh, by these despairing times, these dark times times. And yet when we read history, and I know what you're thinking, you're saying, oh, here goes Dave again, another history lesson. But when we read history, we're getting basically a 10,000-foot view. Uh, all we're doing is zooming in on just a moment in time. We're looking at, in fact, uh, the beginning, the end date, who was involved, and so forth. And you have to take tests on all those pertinent facts and try to figure out what exactly does a teacher want from me, you know? And most of us can't wait to get out of history class. Uh, thankfully, um, that's not the only histories that are out there. You can also get a hold of journals, diaries, autobiographies of people who actually lived through those events. Uh, those give us a much better view, a different perspective. I would call that a street-level view. And so instead of just looking at something from 10,000 feet and trying to get a handle on the pertinent data, in fact, when you read a diary or a journal, you're entering into that person's experience. What it was like to go through those dark times. What it was like to uh, have the joys, the sorrows, the fears, um, the experiences of living at that time. Uh, one of my favorite things to do, even though she didn't write a journal, was to listen to my grandma. Uh, my grandma, born in the late 1800s, uh, experienced so many things that we read about. It, it, it's amazing. But she would talk and tell us about the things that happened to our family, our, our relatives, the people that came before us. That was fascinating. And so it is when we pick up those kind of books. We'd rather not have dark times, wouldn't we? Uh, we don't enjoy them. We're not really uh, people that have gotten used to them. And yet, that's where we're at today, right? Uh, when we think of dark times, we might think of the Vietnam War in our lifetime. We might think of the Twin Towers and 9-11. Uh, there are several things that have happened in our lifetime. But really, the truth is, and what I want to confront us with this morning, is that if you grew up in Iowa, you've lived in Iowa most of your life, or anywhere in the Midwest, and you're 
you know, been around for, say, 60-some years, you've lived a pretty bland life. There haven't been that really many of that dark times. And the reason I say this is, even though we can come up with some experiences like I just mentioned, we were able to really experience those from the comfort of our own home, right? From the comfort of our recliner while watching TV. It's dark times, but they happen to other people. People that were specifically chosen or were in the wrong place at the wrong time or they just happened way over there on the other side of the world. But for us, well, we've gone through the seasons, right? There's fall, there's spring, there's summer. School begins, school ends. I've got a job, I'm working. We have children, children have birthdays, and life just marches on. Nothing to write about in the history books, nothing to really rivet our attention, nothing that could be truly called a dark time until now, until now. What you're living through right now, I guarantee you, will be in the history books 100 years from now. Uh, your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren are gonna read about 2020, right? I mean, we joke about that in some ways. 2020, what a year, I can't wait for 2021. But the truth is, 2020 has been a dark time. There just really isn't any other way to put it. Uh, we're optimistic, we're hopeful, the vaccines are here uh, to stop this global pandemic. If ever there was such a redundant statement, global pandemic, of course, it's everywhere. It's impacted the entire world. And it's not just them over there. It's not just the few that have, were in the wrong place at the wrong time. It's affected all of us, some of us more than others, but still, it's had a tremendous impact on us. Our lives have changed fundamentally. And we wonder if it'll ever be the same again. So do all people who go through dark times wonder that same thing. Will my old way of life, that life I used to enjoy, return to us? You know, we're wearing masks. Whenever we go outside, we keep social distance. Some of us uh, haven't seen families. You know, we're coming through the holiday season and the encouragement is do not gather in large groups, you know. So it's not going to be the usual Thanksgiving, the usual Christmas. And yet people on all sides of this spectrum, I know some people that are so uh, careful and germophobic and afraid that they haven't been out of their homes since March. And they're greatly resentful of those who do venture forth in their minds to spread this uh, virus even further. And then you have people over here, primarily those who live in Texas, <laughs> who just ignore that there is a virus, and they go about and they do their lives. And, but there are people here who are that way too. And no matter where you find yourself this morning on the spectrum, you're in this global pandemic. Yeah, you have no choice. See, that's why I said sometimes dark times are defined as dark times because you don't have to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. It comes and finds you. You are living in the midst of this. Will life ever go back to the way it was? Good question. We don't know. 
now you're sitting there thinking, you know, the reason we tuned in this morning, Dave, was because it's almost Christmas, and I really appreciate this wonderfully uplifting message that you're giving us about Christmas time. Thank you. Thank you very much. But here's the, the point I'm trying to make this morning, is that what we're living through right now, these dark times, is closer to the context of scriptural Christmas than the way we've been living Christmas for most of our lives. What do I mean by that? Well, let's take a look at Isaiah. Let's put it, these verses that we've read this morning, chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, in their proper context. And to do that, I want to look at Isaiah 8. I'm going to go back one chapter and start reading there in verse 5. Isaiah writes as a prophet, and by the way, if you're not familiar with Isaiah, Isaiah is a prophet of God. Uh, probably almost half of the Old Testament is nothing but prophetic writings, right? We have Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Daniel, 12 minor prophets all in there, plus the deeds and tales of how other prophets lived. Moses is counted a prophet, Elijah is a prophet, Eliza is a prophet. There are prophets all through Scripture. Basically, they are the mouthpiece of God. God is talking to his people through these prophets. And Isaiah, in one of the most amazing of prophecies, uh, is trying to get the attention of a certain segment of the nation of Israel, the ten northern tribes. And he is trying to get their attention because they are no longer living for God. And God has been warning them and warning them and warning them and warning them. They have experienced dark times, minor dark times, medium dark times, but now sitting on the horizon of their experience is coming a cloud of darkness that they've never experienced before. It should terrify them. They have angered their God. And you said, boy, I can't wait till you get to the Christmas part, Dave. Well, let's take a look at what it says here in verse 5 of chapter 8. The Lord spoke to me, to whom? To Isaiah. The Lord spoke to Isaiah again. Because this people, that is Israel, has refused the waters of Shiloh that flow gently and rejoice over Rezin and the son of Remaliah, therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, mighty and many, the king of Assyria in all his glory. And it will rise over all its channels and go over all its banks, <clears throat> and it will sweep on into Judah. It will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck, and its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. Be broken, you people. Be shattered. Give ear, all you far countries. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Take counsel together but it will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand, for God is with us. Isaiah is saying this. There's something coming. Matter of fact, it's already come. It's come in waves. What we know from history is that the empire of Assyria, which was to the north of Israel, God has raised up this pagan people to be his right hand, to be his instrument of discipline, of punishment to his own people who have been disobedient to him, 
who have refused to conform themselves to the ethical lifestyle that God asked them to live, but worst of all is that they had decided to adopt the pagan gods of the people that lived around them, right? We remember the story of Israel, right? God calls Abram out of Ur, and he brings them into the promised land, and he tells them, this is what's going to happen. Uh, you will be my people. I will be your God, and you will worship me, and I will bless you. I will give you land. I will give you seed, that is, many descendants, and I will bless you. Think of all the things I'm going to do for you. And we, we follow that history through Abram and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph, and we're in Egypt, and they're there, and God is blessing them. But, you know, at that time, they fall into slavery, and God raises up 400 years later Moses and his brother Aaron, and they lead the people out through many miracles, this parting of the Red Sea, and we see the pillar of cloud a pillar of fire that's leading the people into the promised land. Joshua takes his people in there, and they conquer all of the Canaanites. And God says, you're going to live in houses you didn't build. You're going to plow fields that you didn't till. These, this is going to be your abundance. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. And the giants that lived in the land, I will conquer, not because of the strength of your armies, but because the Lord God Jehovah goes before you. The nations will know that Israel worships the God, the Creator. All I ask of you is to be obedient. And he gives them ten laws, the Ten Commandments, to live their lives by. And the first four primarily are focused on what their attitude should be towards this God. Do not make any graven images, right? Do not profane my name and so forth. God wants them to be focused on him. And what do they do? As soon as they have peace, as soon as they have accomplished their conquest of the land that was promised to them, they began, as it says in Scripture, in such a flowery way, if you will, to play the harlot by worshiping other gods. And God laments and says, oh, I would, I would have done so much for you. I was the bridegroom. You were my bride. I wanted to just enthrall you. I wanted to put my arms around you and embrace you and make you into my people. And over and over again, <clears throat> they refused to listen to the prophets. And finally, here we are, 700 years before the time of Christ. And Isaiah is saying to the people, watch out, it's coming. And what we know that happens is God uses those Assyrians who do not worship him either, but yet they weren't his chosen people. And we know that in three successive waves, they come at Israel, penetrating a little further each time into the land that was supposed to be theirs. Tiglath-Pileser comes in there, and they go down through Zebulun and Naphtali in the north, through the Valley of Grass, the great agricultural area, <clears throat> Shalmaneser, his son, takes over after him. And finally, his nephew, Sennacherib. And as Scripture unfolds, we see this tremendous army coming in, and there's nothing these Israelites can do to stop them. They try. There are many battles recorded in Scripture, but no one can stand before the might of the Assyrians. The Assyrians had some unique characteristics that made them a perfect tool 
to bring discipline upon God's people, right? They had a standing army, which wasn't common back in the ancient Near East. They had the ability to use iron to make swords, spears, to gird their chariots. And they were brutal. They were ferocious people. If you look at the uh, mausoleums of the Assyrian kings, uh, you don't see a lot of things written on there like you do in our cemeteries, you know. Tigliath Pileser was a great father, wonderful husband. No. What we see written repeatedly on their tombs is, I destroyed, I devastated, and I burned with fire. I destroyed, I devastated, and I burned with fire. The Assyrians were a brutal people. And if you dared oppose them, if you did not bend your knee for them, as the Israelites refused to do, they would come in and they would utterly, without hope, show no mercy and conquer you. You'd think after one invasion, the people of Israel would say, oh, Isaiah, come back to us. Tell us, tell us, tell us what we have to do. We repent. We get rid of our other idols, these pieces of wood and these carved rocks that we have bowed ourselves to, that we have burned our children in front of, that we have sliced our skin with, uh, this Baal that we've worshipped. We no longer want to do that. Where is Jehovah? We repent. But they don't. They hold on tighter than ever. The second invasion comes, and it goes even further south. Oh, Isaiah, tell us what we need to do. We repent. And it doesn't happen. By the time Sennacherib comes down, they're all the way down through Samaria to the very borders of Judah, as is prophesied in chapter 8 here. The children of Israel, frankly, historically, practically speaking, are no more. The northern ten tribes are just erased. They don't exist anymore, at least not as a nation. See, the Assyrians, when they came in, uh, because I'm sure we have kids watching this morning, I'm not going into a lot of details, but let me just say it's gruesome what they did to the people that they conquered. They had no problem doing some of the most horrific things to the people that they hated. They would absolutely raise the cities to the ground. They would sow salt into the soil so nothing could grow there. They wanted no return of their enemies to the land and the houses and the places that they had lived. They were just obliterated. You know, and this, this makes sense because when we think of the prophet Jonah, right? He's got his own book a few books away from this one. And his call from God was to go to Assyria, to go to its capital city in Nineveh, and proclaim that Jehovah God is willing to have a relationship with him. Whoa, whoa, wait a minute. Your chosen people, you allow to be destroyed by these Assyrians, and now you're going to send a prophet, albeit a reluctant prophet, to them? Uh, no, Jonah was like, no way. I don't want these people to find salvation in Jehovah I'm going to go the opposite direction. And God has to have him swallowed by a great fish. He spends three days in there, right? Coming to grips with the fact that he isn't God. Jehovah's God. 
Jehovah has called him. He has a purpose. He has a mission. And he has vomited upon the shoreline. And he does go reluctantly to Nineveh. And he tells the people the truth about who their creator is. And the people, against all reason, turn to this God. And they repent. And it makes Jonah so angry that they're not going to get the judgment that was coming to them. So he goes and sits on the hillside and he pouts, right? That's the whole story of Jonah. And God comes to him and he says, what is this to you? I created these people. I created these men, these women, these children. And you want destruction to come upon them because you've seen your friends and neighbors suffer at their hands. I understand, Jonah, but I'm God. And I'm going to do things my way. It's a dark time. And you're saying, Dave, I can't take any more of this. I, I appreciate the history lesson. I appreciate the, the stories. Yeah, that's fine. But what about Christmas? Go back to chapter 9, where we just were as we started this morning. Verse 6. But oh, wait a minute. Just one last example of what I'm saying of our dark times. Look at verse 5, right before the, the passage we're studying. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for fire. You see, this is the context of Christmas. <laughs> this is what's happening when what? Verse 6, unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. It's like poetry, isn't it? Unto us a child is born. What? What does a child have to do with God's plan and purposes? I'm sure the people of Isaiah's day were sitting there going, this, this makes no sense. What, a child? We don't need a child. We need an army. We need a general. We need a power emperor, a warrior. For unto us a child is born. To us a son is given. Isaiah repeats this motif over and over again in chapter 7, right? Child's going to be born. His name will be Emmanuel, God with us. Chapter 8, he's there again. Chapter 11, the child will be sitting on the hole of a poisonous adder and it will not strike him. The lion will lay down with the lamb. What is this child? So you see, Isaiah is saying, I don't get it either, but this is God's directive to me to tell you this, that his solution to the problem that we're experiencing, our disobedience, our warfare literally against God himself, is going to be solved by a child. That is the hope of Israel. In fact, that is the hope for the entire world. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulders, and his name shall be called. And then look at this list of names. Some people look at this and say, well, Dave, you don't understand. In Isaiah's day, this was actually a royal psalm of honor, possibly for someone like Hezekiah, who's to be born. Possibly it's a borrowing of a tribute to one of their local Israeli kings. Let's not get too excited about all these uh, 
prophecies about a child being born. That's not the case. Because when we look at the descriptors, when we look at his names, well, yeah, but Dave, in the ancient times, weren't kings given, you know, to a little bit of hyperbole? Weren't great names being given to uh, kings so that people would just stand in awe of them, right? Well, that's true in a lot of ancient Near Eastern countries, but not in Israel. Israel was not given to this kind of overstatement for their kings. You remember their kings, right? Saul hiding over there with the donkeys, not really wanting to be seen before Samuel calls him forth. David, he's up on the hills watching the sheep, just a boy. The youngest of all of the sons comes down. Nobody would have chosen him for a king, right? And on and on it goes. There wasn't really a whole lot of room for, whoa, we have a great king, you know, we're a great imp. No. This is obviously referring to something that they had not seen before. For unto us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. Wonderful. Counselor. Mighty God. Everlasting Father. Prince of Peace. Let's take a look at these names. These names are describing to us somebody that has never been born before. He is unique. These are names that connote deity, God, in a way that the people of Israel had never thought of. See, their, their experiences with God, at least in their history books, had been, as I said earlier, uh, magnificent. Uh, fire, clouds, hosts of angels, uh, power, but a baby? No. What does Isaiah mean? Well, his name is wonderful. You know, sometimes people use that word in the Hebrew as a modifier of counselor. But in fact, it is a, a different construction. And I prefer to think of it kind of as a standalone word. It can stand alone. He is a God of wonder. This God that is coming, this child that is to be born, he is a God of wonder. Do you know this God? This God of wonder, when we look in the New Testament, no, we, we have that privilege, don't we? We get to go ahead of this prophecy, way down the road. And now we live on the other side of its fulfillment, and we can look back at the life of Jesus Christ, and we say, oh man, wasn't he a God of wonder? This God who walked the land in robes and sandals, who came from Nowheresville, this is the same God that did miracles, that healed the sick, that gave sight to the blind, that cast out demons, who stood up to the oppressors, but in a humble and gentle way. The one that eventually would give his life on the cross. Oh, man, he is a God of wonder. And specifically, it's a shared adjective with his father. God is a God of wonder. Over and over again, we are told that Christ is the creator. As I read early church uh, baptismal formulas over and over again. Jesus is described as the creator of the world, just like his father. They exist in co-wonder, right? When you think of Christ and you really focus on him, all you can do is just praise him, thank him, 
God, you are so wonder, full of wonder. You are wonderful in the English. You're a counselor. Now, it's not unusual to have kings that have counselors, right? Uh, human kings have counselors, wise men, men given to much learning, some men given to the dark arts themselves that can impress people who come visit at a court. But that's not the case with this child that is born. This counselor, he is the counselor. He is full of wisdom. He has a wisdom that exceeds anything that any man has ever had. What does a counselor do? He mediates between people at war, between nations, between individuals, and ultimately between God and us. He is that counselor. He has that kind of power. He is the mighty God. This is a powerful, powerful passage or a phrase. El Gabor. It's used several places in Scripture. It really means hero God. We call him mighty because it's a good descriptor, but let's go look and see how else it's used. In Deuteronomy chapter 10, uh, looking down here at verse 17, it says, and it's the same phrase, for the Lord your God, I love this, is God of gods, Lord of lords. There's no one greater. The great, the mighty, the Gabor, and the awesome God. It sounds like, like a teenager's right there, doesn't it? The great, the mighty, and the awesome. I can tell you how many times I hear people say, I'm so sick of the word awesome. It's right here in Scripture, right? The awesome God who's not partial. He takes no bribe. He is just. He's above the temptations that we have. Verse 18, he executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the stranger. Those people that are marginalized, most marginalized in our society, we think of the protests this summer, we think of all of the destruction that happened, the call for social justice. There is no one greater for social justice than our God. That give him food and clothing. He loves the stranger, therefore you love that stranger. For you were once strangers in the land of Egypt. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and hold fast to him, and by his name you shall swear. He is your praise. He is your God who has done for you these great, and this is a strange phrase, and terrifying things that your eyes have seen. We are to focus on God and to understand just exactly who he is and that he is powerful. He is amazing. We switch again to looking at Jeremiah chapter 32 where this phrase is used again. El Gabor. And we're going to be looking here in verse 17. Ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. To us a child is given, right? Or is born. A son is given. You show steadfast love. I love that phrase. Steadfast love to thousands. But you will repay the guilt of fathers to their children after them. O great and mighty God, whose name is the Lord of hosts, great in counsel, mighty indeed, whose eyes are open to all the ways of the children of man, rewarding to each one according to his ways and according to the fruit of his deeds. He is the mighty God. Unto us a child is born, a son is given. 
wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father. Another difficult construct in the Hebrew. He's not just eternal, right? He lives forever because he is God. But he's everlasting Father. He's always going to be that person that you can go to as a perfect father. You know, kings are often viewed as a dad. Go to this king. Worship him. Go to your father. As Jesus called his dad, Abba, you know, father. We can pray to him. We can beseech him. And what do fathers do? They, they listen. They give wise counsel. But they protect. And we need that. They provide. Boy, do we need that. They give us great wisdom. They are, in a sense, the one who leads the way. The one who shows us as a family, this is the way that we should go. I raise my children in the hopeful knowledge that they will know this everlasting Father as their own in a personal and unique way because he is the one that has led me. I want my family to have the imprint of this Father in their life. Not of me. I don't want them to imitate me. I want them to imitate him. He is the everlasting Father. And finally, he is the Prince of Peace. So much is said about the Prince of Peace, right? Yeah, it's a great thing. Peace is a strange concept in Scripture. I mean, we think we know what peace is. Peace means the absence of war, the absence of conflict, the absence of hard feelings. But peace in Scripture, well, that's a whole other thing. If we look at John chapter 14, verse 27, it says, if I can find it here, peace I leave with you, this is Jesus, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give it to you. Let your hearts not be troubled, neither let them be afraid. The peace that Jesus gives, it far exceeds anything that the world knows. Peace is always dependent in the world on a horizontal level, right? Between the integrity of the people who agree to the peace. And it may be broken at any moment. But when Jesus, when this child that is born, the son that is given brings peace, it's an eternal peace. We're told over and over again, God gives peace to those people he wants to bless. And those people who rebel against him, who are not walking with him, he removes peace from them. Peace is a sign that the Holy Spirit is sealing you for a guarantee of your salvation. That is peace. Jesus is peace. Romans chapter 5, verse 1 tells us that Jesus brings peace. Does this world need anything more than peace? For unto you a child is born, a son is given. In Isaiah's day, this was a prophecy. This was something they hoped for. They didn't get it. They didn't understand it. What does a little baby have to do with what we're talking about here? How can this make such a difference? But he does. He did. And he is. Jesus is wonderful. He's a counselor. He's the counselor. He's mighty. Man, we haven't even begun to see the, the extent of his power, as we will when he returns. He's everlasting Father, and he is the Prince of Peace.
I said that we live on the other side of this prophecy now. When I look to Luke chapter 2, which many of us will read in our homes on Christmas or Christmas Eve, it says, and I love this passage, and while they were there, verse 6, the time came for her, Mary, to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there just wasn't any place for them in the end. God came to the world. Let the bells ring. Turn on the lights. Let your families gather, even if it's on Zoom. Celebrate. Give praise to him. It's not about materialism. It's not about turkeys. It's not about the Christmas tree, though those things are fun. But the focus is that in the midst of dark times, God remembered us. He sent forth his Son. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a Son is given, and the government shall rest upon his shoulders. For he is wonderful. He is counselor. He is mighty God. He is everlasting Father, and he is the Prince of Peace. And to his rule there will be no end. And I love the last part of that in verse 7, where it says, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do. The word zeal there is so powerful. It's going to happen, and it did happen, because God wanted it to happen. He's avid, he's jealous, he's zealous. All of those words are synonyms for the same concept. God wants to give you this Christmas gift of his son. Each of us who are here today, if we know the Lord Jesus is our Savior, we know what it means when we say that the child was born, the son was given, and we know the end results of that. But in case you are here and you don't know Jesus as your Savior, your life doesn't look like someone who's had interaction with this God that I just mentioned, then I can only encourage you that if you really want to experience Christmas, no matter how dark your universe is right now, go to the sun, run to the child, be there in that manger, worship him, take him into your arms, and you will find yourself in the presence of the promise of God. There's nothing about this global pandemic that should overwhelm us as believers because we have the promise fulfilled. We are those who bear the image of Christ. The world needs to see that image. Let's make that happen. Father, we thank you for this morning. I thank you, Lord, for your grace and your mercy. Lord, we believe that a child was born, that a son was given, and that the government rests upon his shoulders. Lord, thank you that he is who he is. May we, Father, tell our neighbors, tell our family the hope that we have in our hearts, the joy that we have truly at Christmas. Let the bells ring, and may the world know that the Savior has come and that only life can be found through him. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.